at the center of human existence is this fundamental and basic question. Why are we here? Why are we here? And I was going to give you the reasons why, why we are here, listed by many of the psychiatrists and philosophers throughout the day, but we can spend the entire sermon just speaking of different ways or different ideas people think why we are here. But for us specifically this morning, I just want a few questions to run by you. Consider these. Why did God create man? Why did God create man? What was God's purpose in placing Adam in the garden? What is the final end look like for those who are in Jesus Christ? What is the ultimate goal of the Christian life? Prayer, Bible study, good works. What is, it, what is it that we as Christians should be praying for, dreaming of, and hoping for the most as we live our lives as Christians? What does heaven look like? What will we do with our time when we are with Jesus in heaven? Will we go to heaven immediately? Or do we have to wait to the new heavens and new earth? And this final question, what does God look like? And will we ever see him? To help us answer those questions, turn me to John's first letter. The first letter of John, which is not the gospel of John, but the epistle of John. First John. And if you are able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. First John. <clears throat> this morning I just have one verse I want us to consider. But in the context I'll read the first verse but we will focus on verse 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. Now for our consideration this morning. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You may be seated. This morning, I want us to consider the hope of the Christian life, which is two simple points. The first point a sight lost in misery. A sight lost in misery. And second point, a sight obtained and enjoyed. 
The first point, a sight lost in misery. And the second point, a sight obtained and enjoyed. Let's consider the first point, a sight lost in misery. In all of the history of literature, the opening chapters of the Bible are some of the most remarkable, are they not? Just think of the big questions that philosophers have asked throughout the centuries. Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, Genesis 1.1 answers that question for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did mankind get here? We read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. But in light of these marvelous verses that we read, in a lot of these big questions that we have answered for us, the most remarkable statement that we find in the early chapters of Genesis must be Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. The greatest thing about creation is not merely creation itself, but the greatest thing about creation is on the sixth day God dwelt there. Eden was a fit place for God to rest with his people and to be with his people. And friends, this is the world that Adam, the first man, our covenant head, our representative, was brought into. A world where he had communion with God, 24 access. And besides just two trees, everything was at his disposal. He was a prophet. He was a priest. He was God's king. He was an image bearer of God who was a sinless representative of mankind. He represented us. He was upright. He was righteous. But as beautiful as Eden was, and as good as Adam had it, there was a work that he was required to accomplish. Theologians have called this the covenant of works, where God imposed a covenant upon Adam where he was to obey God, and he was to teach others how to obey God. He was to work, and he was to attend the garden. He was to protect the borders of Eden. He was not to allow any evil to enter that holy sanctuary we know as Eden. He was to be fruitful and exercise dominion over all of the earth. In a nutshell, what was in Eden all that was in Eden, the presence of God, Adam was to stretch to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth look like that little blueprint we know as Eden. The glory of God was to fill the globe while God's image bearers were placed in every part of the globe. And if Adam completed his work, and if he passed his probationary period, 
A great reward would be given to him. Adam, if you do this, you get this. First, he would receive confirmed righteousness. Adam was upright and righteous, but it could have changed. But if Adam completed the covenant of works, then he would have been confirmed in God's sight that he is righteous and holy. Second, his natural body would change into a spiritual body, meaning his mutable and changing life would transform into an eternal and never-changing life. He would live forever. Thirdly, he would enter and enjoy God's Sabbath rest. Now, it's not to say that Adam didn't already enjoy the Sabbath day. He enjoyed that day when he would come and rest from all of his labor on that Saturday. However, the rest that Adam would have received if he completed the covenant of works signifies a life of peace and unchanging joy. That's what Sabbath rest means. It means the end of motion, the end of change, forever at one state. But this last reward that Adam would receive is the one that we want to consider this morning. And indeed, it is the sweetest of them all. If Adam passed his probationary period, his communion with God would be heightened to a state where he would see God face to face. Adam was offered an advancement in his communion, in his relationship with God. You see, in the garden, Adam only knew what it felt like to be in God's presence. He knew what God's closeness felt like, for he walked with God. But the reward that was offered goes beyond the feeling. It goes beyond the knowing. For Adam would have beheld God by sight. For sight is a heightened sensory description of the utmost intimacy and closeness. Adam would have enjoyed what theologians have called the beatific vision. And what I want you to take special note of is that man was created and he was ordered in such a way that he would see God. He was created for this purpose, to see God face to face. His natural body and natural sight, Adam's, pointed toward his spiritual body and his spiritual sight. Friends, what this means is man was made for more than just being human. He was made more than just to work. But by perfect obedience, Adam would achieve, he would advance his temporal and lowly estate to a heavenly and spiritual estate. And this advancement would bring a communion with God that went beyond the simply knowing he's there, the simply fellowshipping with him by speech. But he would enjoy face-to-face communion with God. 
For that's what it means to have a heightened communion bond. For your fellowship with one another to go to a next level. But sadly, we know that such advancement never was attained by Adam. Adam, as God's sinless image bearer, broke covenant with God by eating of the forbidden tree. Adam lost the garden. He lost his righteous standing before God. He lost any advancement of human life that he would have achieved. But ultimately, the greatest loss of Adam was God himself. Adam lost God in the garden. He lost communion with God, fellowship with God. You see, Adam in the garden was in a blessed state, which means that he experienced complete happiness and joy. It was a joy for Adam to work and tend the garden. And this joy came from his fellowship with God. God was Adam's source of joy and happiness. And the chief misery of the fall is not only the loss of enjoyment of God, but the prospect of that enjoyment advancing. The prospect of that joy heightening. Adam lost the beatific vision. And in him we lost the beatific vision. Augustine says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. In other words, the most blessed state where we see God face to face was lost in Adam. As Pascal says, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. In other words, there is a God-shaped hole in our heart, and only God can fill that hole. Whatever you do, whatever enjoyment you might have in this world, will never fill that void, will never fill that hole that only God can fill. And as Gregory of Nyssa said, we are, at a, we are on a never-ending search to see God. The glorious news, however, is that God sends his Son to fill that which Adam lost. We considered a sight that was lost in misery. Now let's consider a sight that is obtained and enjoyed. Let's look at the second point. A sight obtained and enjoyed. Adam lost this chance to see God face to face. Now stay with me here. He lost this advancement of human nature. That we were created to see God, to commune with God face to face. What we see in Jesus Christ is he obtains for us that which we lost. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:22, For as in Adam all die... So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. In Adam, everything that God promised him was lost. But the good news of the gospel is in Jesus Christ, what Adam failed to obtain, Christ obtains. Christ wins what Adam failed to obtain. 
what is Adam, what Adam was commanded to do, Jesus Christ does. He was a perfect, sinless representative. Not only did he obey the law, but he fully fulfilled the law. He offers up to God a perfect and holy sacrifice. And on the account of his perfect life and death, he was glorified with the glory that he shared with the Father and the Spirit in times eternal. Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. And as truly man, he advances our human nature to the estate that Adam failed to obtain. As man, he does what the first man failed to do. He heightens our communion bond with God. Christ's lowly human body was advanced to a spiritual body. This is why after the resurrection, they couldn't, they couldn't see him. They couldn't picture him because who they knew he was, he was not any longer. This is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The man of the earth was advanced to the man of heaven. He was a heavenly man. His human nature was glorified. He heightens and advances our human nature. He simply doesn't take us back to the garden, friends. He doesn't put us back in Eden. But he takes us to the estate in which Adam fell to obtain. In Christ, we become what man was supposed to be. And we achieved what man was promised to receive. We become more human in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is why salvation in Christ is much sweeter than just justification. Praise God that God no longer sees me as a sinner. Christ wins for us more than just peace with God. Praise God that we are no longer sinners, but we are children of our Holy Father. But friends, Christ obtains something that's far more surpassing. What can be better than justification, right? What can be better than peace with God? What can be better than being a child of God? 1 John 3, 2 says this. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And here's the sweet honey for our soul. Because we shall see him as he is. Take a moment and let that marinate in your mind and heart and soul. We shall see him as he is. What Christ wins for us is what the great Jonathan Edwards called the happiest vision. Christ obtains for us that heightened communion bond with God that was offered to Adam. That perfect vision of God that theologians call the beatific vision. Now, what is the beatific vision? It is the most 
blessed sight. The most blessed sight. The happiest sight that can ever be beheld with the human eye. And this vision is a vision of God. That's what the beatific vision is. It's a vision of God. And as we read the Old Testament, we have this vision prefigured for us in types and shadows and in various ways. Moses tells God in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, Please show me your glory. And as Moses hid in the cleft of the rock, God's glory passes by Moses. Moses never sees God's face to face. In Exodus 3, Moses had another encounter with God, where God spoke to Moses through a burning bush, but he never saw God face to face. In Ezekiel's vision of the Lord, in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel sees a throne and an appearance of one who is like sapphire and fire. If you ever get a chance, maybe during the break or rest time, read Ezekiel chapter 1 and read this vision he has. But he never sees God face to face. The psalmist says in chapter 27, 4, one thing I have asked for the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the name of the Lord all the days of my life, and hear this, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. And lastly, Job said in chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, after my skin has thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And hear what he says here. For whom shall... For whom shall see for myself? And my eyes shall behold, and not another. We have in the Old Testament many thinking about, envisioning, looking forward to this day where they will see God face to face. And what we see in these texts is that God allowed some in the Old Testament to have an accommodated vision of him. And as we come to the New Testament, we see this vision of God greatly anticipated. No verse sticks out more than the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see him in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, or know fully, even as I have been fully known. Hear this, saints. What Paul is saying is right now, the saints of God currently see God. Right now, you have a vision of God. Not with the physical sight, however, but by faith. By faith, you see God face to face. Friends, by faith, We see God through a darkened mirror, through clouds and through haze and through fog. We behold our God. And each time we read our word, and each time we learn new insights into who God is, 
it is as if the sun is breaking through ever so slightly the clouds of our minds. It's as if the sun is moving away the fog and the haze. Intellectually, we see God now through a mirror dimly, through a broken and shattered glass by faith, we behold God. And saints, for many of us, isn't it a wonder of how much we can love and find someone so beautiful without ever seeing them face to face? Think about you right now. Think about what you know about God and who he is. How beautiful do you find him without ever seeing him? If you love him now by faith, imagine your love for him when you see him by sight. I love learning about the doctrine of God and who God is and the person and work of Christ. And, but I have to remind myself, God is always so much more. Every Sunday, Pastor Antonio and I try to give you a picture of God in such a way that, that heightens your view of who he is. In a nutshell, the application of every sermon is, behold your God. But saints, in all honesty, what are we really saying when we speak of our Lord? What are we really saying about one who is incomprehensible and infinite? No matter how glorious a picture I can paint of our God, Seeing him face to face will surpass the eloquent speech, will surpass our deepest and highest thoughts of him. But saints, two questions arise when we speak of this beatific vision. The first is, who will we see? And the second is, in what manner will we see it? Who will we see? You're saying that we would behold God, but who will we see? Does this beatific vision consist of gazing at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit? Does it consist of seeing the divine essence? Do we see simply the Father alone? Well, we have a vision likened to Isaiah, who saw the Lord high and lifted up. So who will we see? Our verse in 1 John tells us, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Who shall we see? We will see Jesus Christ. We will have a vision of our risen and ascended Lord in all of his glory the one who is truly God and truly man, will be the object of our vision. We will not see Christ as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as those on earth saw him. But we will see the transfiguration Christ. We will see the Christ whose glory is shared with the Father and the Spirit. We will see Christ bodily, yes, and as we gaze upon Christ's human appearance, we will see his divinity because Christ is a divine person and we cannot separate his human nature from his divine nature. When we see Jesus, we will see God for Jesus Christ is God. This is how God will be seen. 
we learn that God is invisible. He says to Moses that no man can look at me without dying. But when we behold the incarnate Son, when we behold God who took on flesh, then we behold God himself. For Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In John 14, Philip asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. What does Jesus say? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hear this, saints. Jesus is the image. He is the perfect image of the heavenly, of our heavenly Father. In other words, when we gaze upon the Son, we gaze upon the Father. There, were, there was not going to be a person in back of the Son. For Jesus is truly God, just as the Father is just truly God. When we see the Son, we see the Father. This is why Jesus says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Seeing the Son necessarily entails seeing the Father. Those who have eyes of faith, can see the essence of God in the unity of the person of Christ. Our vision is Christological. And this beatific vision is only enabled by the work of the Spirit. It is in the Spirit that we will see the Son. And when we see the Son, we see the Father. As the psalmist says in chapter 36, 9, probably my favorite verse so far of the year, in your light, we shall see light. In the light of the Spirit, we behold true light, which is the sun. And the sun beholds or shows us the original, the source of light, the Father. This vision will be Trinitarian as well as Christological. Secondly, in what manner will we see Christ? We will see Jesus Christ in all of his glory, but in what manner? And this question has been debated ever, all throughout church history. Many think that we will behold God in a more complete way with our minds, that this vision of God is merely intellectual, but the apex of intimacy and communion is sight. Not a, not a, hyphen, not a heightening of our, of our knowledge, but is seeing one face to face. Again, Job says, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. My eyes shall behold not another. Do me a favor. Take your hands, please. Put your hands on your eyes. With these very same eyes, you will see God. If that is not freaky enough for you, I don't know what is. The very same eyes that you are looking at me now will be the same eyes that you see God face to face. Think about all the beautiful things you've seen thus far in your life. So, uh, in your life, think about all the things your eyes have seen, and your eyes have taken 
pictures of. Think of the buildings. Think of the mountains. Think of the hills. Think of the seas. Think of the animals. Think of the stars. Now think of seeing beauty unveiled. Think of seeing beauty with a capital B. Think of seeing the one who is the very idea of beauty. The one who is the very definition of beauty. Christ is the very essence of the beautiful. And saints, this glory of vision, glorious vision of Christ, when we see him, we will not see him and and then go to our corner somewhere in heaven and then think about our vision of him. But when we see him, he will never be dimmed and it will never be darkened. We will not have to take out our phones and take a picture or take a video. For we will behold the Lamb's face every single second, every single day, and every single moment of our life. We will never be bored in heaven. Jonathan Edwards says beautifully, like the clear Hampshire with the sun in the Mediterranean, there shall never come even one cloud to darken the mind. There will never come one wind of fog or haze that will dilute or cover our vision of Christ. Saints, the beatific vision is the glorious hope for the blessed. If you are saved by Christ and Christ alone, this is the hope that you have to look forward to. With our eyes, we will see the triune God in the face of Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, what do we do? How can we prepare for this beatific vision? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It is those who have been justified by God's grace and grace alone and rely on the Spirit daily to kill sin that will see God face to face. The lukewarm Christian, hear me now, the lukewarm Christian will not see God face to face. The one who is on the fence about their walk with Christ will not see God face to face. The unrepented sinner will not see God face to face. The Christian who's just going through the motion, who's just going to church and doing the church thing, doing the Christian life to please whoever will not see God face to face. But those who are striving for holiness, those who are striving to be more like Christ, those who sin and who are sincere in their repentance will see the face of God in Jesus Christ. One last way we can prepare for the beatific vision is by not forsaking the gathering of the saints. Each service we have a foretaste of what heaven will be like. Each time we sing, each time we pray, each time we hear the preached word, even now we are beholding God more and more by faith in our minds. Each Sabbath day you are seeing God with your minds. And this, saints, 
is what prepares you to see God with your eyes. Right now, and as long as the Lord gives me in this church, my duty is to prepare you to see God by sight. Faith prepares us for sight. But if you don't look forward to beholding God by faith and with our minds, if you don't like reading your word, if you don't like reading more about who God is or praying or singing, then how in the world will you ever enjoy seeing God face to face? In closing, friends, it was Jonathan Edwards who said that heaven is a world of love. And the centerpiece of this world, the one who is high and lifted up in the middle, is God himself. The greatness of heaven is not that there will be no more sin. The greatness of heaven is not that we will never shed a tear. Or it's not that we will never be sorrowful. I don't know what heaven will be like. I don't know if we'll be playing basketball or eating different things or I'll have that body that we, I always dreamed of. I, I don't know that. But heaven is not concerned with that. Heaven is concerned with whom we will see. If I was to, for one last time, speak to my father... I think the one question I would tell him or the one thing I would tell him is not necessarily how much I love him and not even how much I miss him. Not all the things that he right now is missing out on. But I would say, Pop, what was it like the first time you saw Jesus? In this life and the next, yes, I long to see my Father. I long to see my loved ones, but friends, I cannot wait to see Jesus. Because Christ is who it's all about. In this life and the next, it's all about Jesus Christ. Heaven is not about a place about a person. It's about beholding the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And when we see Jesus Christ, then we will behold the work of redemption. We will see clearly the hypostatic union. We will see clearly His perfect law keeping. We will see clearly all of that He has done for us. We will see clearly the reason for the cross. We will see the resurrection in all of its glory. We will see him risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. We will see all the things that are mysterious to us now in all of its glory and beauty. As Thomas Manson has said, we go to heaven to study divinity in the Lamb's face. And when that time comes, we will enjoy God in a way that goes beyond faith and hearing. Saints' faith will one day give away to sight. 
think about that. One day we will not have to believe and trust in God by faith. Saints, this is the glorious hope for the Christian. This is why none of us should fear death. It was R.C. Sproul who said that the death of the saint is sweet in the eyes of God. My wife asked me as I was preparing for this and I was talking to her, do you think it's scary? Is it, do you fear going to heaven and seeing God? And my first reaction was yes. Of course. But then I'm reminded that when I see God, I will not see a judge. I will see my Savior. And even if I see my judge, and if my sin is lamblasted upon the screen, and every thought and every wicked intention that I've ever done is on the screen in, in 4K and 8K, and I see every single thing, I picture my Savior saying, but I died for that. And I forgive you for that. You see, friends, the Christian life is not simply about holy living, but it's also concerned with holy dying. And my task as your shepherd is, yes, to minister the word to you in such a way that you will see God in a clearer way, that you will live in such a way that is Christ-like, but also I'm preparing you to die well, to die with dignity, with honor, to say when the doctor tells you you have six months to live, say, pull the plug now. I'm ready to go home. As I close with the words, I close with the words of John in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of life, water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be on it, in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And the nights will be no more. There will be no need of light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray.